Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week, and thank you once again for joining us. Uh, I trust you're doing it every week at the same time as we uh, are continuing to do series that uh, it takes us a little while to build some things. And when you follow us consistently, you get the whole uh, overview of what we're trying to share with you. Uh, we do appreciate you joining in every week, and if you're enjoying the program, we ask you, tell your friends about us, share uh, it on your Facebook page or social media. Uh, let me say very quickly that we are, uh, this is the third, third segment, I'm sorry, on a series that I'm calling Band-Aid Religion. And uh, what, what we uh, have been dealing with is we've been dealing with Romans 7 and Romans 8 and behavior under the New Covenant. I believe that's an important subject to tackle. Now, let me say to you that if you've missed any of these, you can go back to our YouTube channel and watch everything that we have aired to date is archived on our YouTube channel. You can also get uh, the audio portions of this on our podcast on iTunes. You can also get it on your Android device. There is on our website, the easiest way to do any of this is simply to go to my website, and that address is on the screen, simply lynnhiles.com. And uh, in the upper right-hand corner, there are icons that one of them looks like a YouTube insignia, the other looks like a, uh, an iTunes uh, uh, logo, and the other one looks like a little robot for the Android. The easiest way to find any of our stuff is to tap on one of those icons, and it will direct, take you directly to that link on YouTube. If you're there and you want to subscribe to the channel, it is absolutely free. And when you subscribe to the channel, what happens is that you will receive a notification every time we upload a new program or a new audio to one of these uh, outlets. We're so thankful for the, uh, uh, you know, the ability on some of these media platforms to reach literally the nations of the earth. And because we closed caption our program, of course, the hearing impaired can... Uh, of course, be able to watch and listen. But one of the things that we have found out is that when we put our closed captioning on our YouTube page, it translates to every language around the world so that you can literally uh, send this to somebody who does not speak English and the, uh, that will translate it into their language. And I believe it's a blessing. So when you're there as well, if you feel like it and you, you, you appreciate what we're doing, you've been following us for some time, uh, if you're there, there's also a place where you can uh, give and uh, via credit card, PayPal, debit card, whatever. But it's easy to do while you're there. Get back in the Word today. I want to go to Romans again. We're, we're dealing with Romans 7 and 8. And what we dealt with over the last two weeks is Paul talked about this dilemma of when I want to do good, evil is present. And what I want to do is not what I seem to do. And what I hate that's what I seem to do. And I love how the Message Bible says it. Paul said, I'm at the end of my rope. It is evident, he said, that I want to do what's good, but I can't seem to perform it or do it. And then he reduces and his utter uh, dis discouragement to say, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God he will. So what Paul begins to do is shift the focus off of his own performance because Romans 7 
is really talking not about the plight of the Christian journey. He's talking about the plight of the man who is under the law. Because when you're under the law, it is a roller coaster of I've got the victory, I don't have the victory. I'm in, I'm out, he loves me, he loves me not, and I hope I die on he loves me. But what we find is, is that what Paul was saying is, when I'm in that roller coaster ride of depending on my own human abilities and flesh to perform this, it brings me to utter frustration because I'm always predictably in the same place of condemnation and guilt, and then when he begins to discover that the only way up out of this repetitious roller coaster ride of band-aid religion is to put your trust completely and utterly in Jesus and the work of the Spirit in you rather than your own ability to produce it, then God begins to do some transformation in your life that is deep, it is deep healing, it is deep transformation, and I talked about the last segment we were on, how the law can change your behavior, but grace will change your heart. Law can change your behavior, but grace transforms the reason you do it. Now I want to come back in again and read this, and I'm reading to you from uh, the Message Bible. Uh, and I'm just going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 8. We've already dealt with the thing in 7. So with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that faithful dilemma is resolved. That roller coaster ride we've been on of up and down, in and out, failure and success. I can't seem to perform what is good. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer live under the, uh, a continuous low-lying cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded life of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the juggler when He sent His own Son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In His Son Jesus, He personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity, in order to set it right once and for all. The law code weakened as it always was by fraction human nature, could have never done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of the deep healing of it. It says, but what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what He's doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. But if God Himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of Him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, 
the Spirit of Christ won't know what we're talking about. But for you who have welcomed Him in, in whom He dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead, let me, I lost, who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, He'll do the same thing in you that He did in Jesus, bringing you alive to Himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and He does as surely as He did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With His Spirit living in you, your body will be alive, be as alive as Christ. So don't you see, we don't owe that, we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. I love that. There's nothing in it for us. Nothing at all. The best thing you can do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's Spirit beckons. These, there are things to do and places to go. Now that to me, there's some powerful stuff in this. He's saying to them, listen, you know one of the things I think we don't really think in terms of, is he's talking about when you focus on your own human strength and ability to do this, when you're depending on your own uh, law-keeping religious ability to keep this, he said you're actually focusing more on self than you are focusing on God. Matter of fact, in Romans 7 and 8 in the King James Bible, it calls it being in the flesh. Now see, we think it's a lot of terms about, you know, we need to, 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 to crucify self, and we need to crucify the flesh. We think about it in terms of just the bad stuff. But one of the things that Paul calls being in the flesh in both Romans and in the book of Galatians is, this is a whole new revolutionary concept to many. But Paul calls being in the flesh being under the law. He says in Romans, I believe it is 7, when we were under the law, when we were in the flesh, we were under the law. And uh, Romans, I mean Galatians chapter 4 and 5, Paul is dealing with this whole thing again when he says, they that have confidence in the flesh, you know, are, are, are these Judaizers that are, that are trying to bring you back up underneath of their circumcision rules and their, uh, you know, he said, you started out in the Spirit do you think you're going to be made perfect in the flesh? And I don't know if you've thought about this before or not, but the flesh, what he calls being in the flesh in those contexts is religious flesh. See, it's real easy to see somebody got a bad attitude or somebody's done something carnal, and we think of that as being, well, they're in the flesh, but we never think that a lot of stuff we've called spirituality wasn't spiritual at all. It was band-aid religion and it was being in the flesh because it put more focus on you than it did God. If the focus is on you and your abilities, you're in the flesh. But if you, instead of redoubling your own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in you and let God do the work inside of you, then you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit. As a matter of fact, that's the context of Galatians chapter number 5 when he talks about, for the works of the flesh which are made manifest, which are these, hatred, malice, envy, strife, divisions, and he starts talking about stuff you see in every church. Paul calls that the work of the flesh. 
Because see, what happens is, is even in Romans 7, what was the pre, uh, you know, the setup for these chapters is Paul said, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So it was literally the law that was the strength of sin, and it's what gave death a sting, but it's what we preach over American pulpits every week. Now, I'm not suggesting it's all right to, to, to have certain behaviors. That's what we're dealing with here. What I'm dealing with is the deep healing of it, rather than simply a fleshly attempt to try to put on your you know, uh, you, you, and, and you, because what Paul said happens even when he talks about the law code, what it did was it dressed stuff up and made it look like it was holy, and it really it was actually producing in him the wrong thing. In other words, you could think, well, look how holy I am. Look how good I am. I thank God I'm not like that sinner. And talk about all of your moral muscle and how holy you are because the focus is still on you and it's nothing but religious flesh and religious pride. But see, He gives more grace to the humble. That doesn't mean you go around with your head hanging down and you're in the mully grubs. It means you've come to the place where you realize, listen, this is not by my might or by my power. It's by His Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It is not my moral muscle. It is not me redoubling my own efforts. It's not I'm holier than you are. I am what I am by the grace of Almighty God today. And I thank Him that I can embrace His Spirit so that the work that's in me is more than just a surface fleshly deal that produces in me a spiritual pride. But as Romans 8 goes on to say, it is the power of the resurrected Christ and the power of His resurrection that's working inside of me. A lot of people preach Romans 8 as a future reality, and in some instances there are some things, of course, that have ongoing results. But we need to understand that the power of resurrection is not just to get you up out of a grave somewhere in some distant future, but the moment you throw your feet out of bed in the floor in the morning, that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. That's what this is saying. He's saying, listen, if that same Spirit, that, if that, he said, uh, he said, uh, let, me, let me go back and look at this. It said, but if God Himself, this is verse 9, has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than Him. In other words, your focus has shifted from your flesh to His power. I hope I'm helping somebody today. It's shifted from my ability to His ability. It is shifted from dependence on me to dependence on Him. It is shifting my focus from uh, what I can produce on my own to receiving what He did through Christ and His finished work. It goes on to say, anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ won't know what we're talking about. So if you're not a believer, the best you have is self-effort. And to me, I say give it your best shot. But really, the folks who really find recovery and redemption and salvation from any kinds of addiction are really going to have to turn to Jesus and find out this is more than willpower. This is the power of a resurrected Christ living inside of me, uh, and it dwells inside of me that's going to produce this change for me. Verse 11 said, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, He'll do the same thing in you that He did in Jesus, bringing you alive to Himself. Now, if you've not welcomed this 
present God moving into your life. He said, anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. So if you've not welcomed Him into your life, do it today. Simply receive the, the forgiveness of sin. Simply receive the reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself by not counting men's sin to them. But he goes on and says, but be ye reconciled to God. God's already been reconciled to you, but your response needs to be to be reconciled to Him and welcome. See, there's a lot of Christians who are believers who have not welcomed this resurrected power to welcome it in their lives. They're still, if I could call it like this, carnal Christians or fleshly Christians, because they're still trying to do this through the wrong covenant. But with that same, if, if he did, what he's saying is, it, it stands to reason, doesn't it? That if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus. I like that. You're delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. King James says, if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, it will quicken, make alive your mortal body. He's not talking about something that happens years in the future. He's talking about something that is a present reality in the life of the believer right now, is that resurrected life, the power of that resurrected life working inside of you as the new creature. He said, so don't you see, we don't know that this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent burial. Get on with your new life. God's Spirit beckons. There are things to do, places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. I like that. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's an adventurously expectant greeting God with a child like, What's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is, and we know who we are, father and children, and we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with Him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times. Now let me come back here again and just hit this a little bit. Hallelujah. We don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. Let's bury it and get on with our lives. And he said, this resurrection life you receive from God is not a grave, is not a timid, grave-tending life. I think my early days of Christianity, that's exactly what my life was, was a timid grave-tender. I thought, you know, I was thinking to myself even about, I thought about Joseph of Arimathea. You know, he, he, he gave Jesus the tomb that he had hewn out himself. He hewn it out of the rock. Now think about this a minute. If you have a hewn out of the rock tomb, this, this was not a one-day project. This was a lifelong time of taking a lot of your spare time to dig your own grave and to dig yourself a grave, say, one of these days, I'm going to be buried in this thing. I'm digging, the, and you know, I, and I'm, I'm telling you, when I thought about that, when Joseph of Arimathea gave that grave to Jesus, what he was saying is, I'm, if I give up this tomb to him, I'm not going to need it because he's going to be the power of resurrection for me. In other words, we have spent most of our lives 
trying to, if you will, crucify ourselves rather than realize His death was my death. I was crucified with Christ, and yes, there is a reckoning yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God, but it is not an ongoing thing where you are dying daily. I know what some of you are, are thinking. Well, Paul said, you know, uh, I die daily. You've got to read the context of that. When Paul said, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, and he was talking about he faced physical death on a daily basis. He was not talking about dying daily to sin or to self. He was talking about dying uh, in, in the arenas, and what he was saying is he faced death daily. And so the reality of it is, is that, that we are not dying daily. We have to receive, like Romans 6 said, a once for all reckoning that I was crucified with Christ. That was my death. I'm not going to make this a grave-tending death of trying to constantly chase every deed and put to death this one and put to death that one. I am simply going to embrace the power of the resurrection that's inside of me, and the resurrected life that's inside of me is going to lift me above all of this grave-tending life. We are either going to mourn a dead Savior or we're going to celebrate a resurrected king. And so many people are on one side or the other of this, and the reality of it is, is I'm telling you, I've been on both sides of it. And I can tell you, this whole life is so much better when you start living this resurrection life, because it is more than just a ticket to heaven one day. It will quicken your mortal body. What does that mean? That means it can make this thing do what it could not do on its own. Because the empowerment of the Holy Ghost and the empowerment of the Spirit will make alive and quicken your mortal body, not just one of these days, but every moment when you need the strength and the power of God to rise up above the things, because you are going to receive <coughs> an incredible inheritance. He said, you're, he, uh, 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 he said, that's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deeps, deepens. All around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain to throughout the world are simply birth pains, but it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pains. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. Now let me stop for a moment and talk about this. I'm going to set the stage to talk about it in one more segment. A lot of times we preach this Romans 8 as some future event again, and, and yet it may have ongoing results. I'm not saying it doesn't. But what we need to realize is that the Apostle Paul, what he was talking about in the King James Bible, he said, all creation is groaning and travailing for the manifestation of the sons of God, for the creation itself will be brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That glorious liberty was not something waiting for some future millennial reign. That glorious liberty was living life in the context of sonship, with the Holy Spirit as your governor, and living a life in freedom of liberty from the law of Moses. See, what we don't understand is the transition of what was taking place here, is they were moving from law to grace. 
And all of creation was in birth pains. All of creation was groaning and travailing for the manifestation of the sons of God, because under the old covenant you were a servant, but in the new covenant you're a son. You live life in the context of sonship as a father-son relationship. And the groaning that was on them, these people were suffering. See, we preach this suffering sometimes like, boy, the more you suffer, the more you're going to be a son. But what Paul was saying here is, we, we reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. What he's saying is, we're suffering shipwreck, snakebite, beatings, imprisonment, perils among false brethren, Judaizers coming in aware. I mean, opposition on every level. And Paul said, I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to be revealed, because the creation is going to be brought into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. That suffering that he was talking about is the reproach and the suffering that they were experiencing for preaching freedom and new covenant realities. We still, it's a tragedy to me that we're 2,000 years later having to preach some of this stuff to get people into this same glorious liberty because what religion does is takes them back into bondage, puts them back up under that band-aid religion, puts them back under self-effort, and puts them back in bondage again. But the glorious liberty that creation was groaning for at that moment was being brought out from underneath of the tyranny of this self-based, law-based, legalistic lifestyle that was band-aid religion that did not produce the freedom and the quality of life. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. See, there's only a few things that I think is worth dying for. And as I look at these men, I think to myself, listen, what was it that made them willing to die? One of the things was willing to die for was freedom. And because they stood up, and because they preached what they preached, we have been brought into a glorious liberty of the sons of God, where we can live our life now in the context of sonship, where they that are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. What's the contrast? What used to lead you before? If you're led by law, you're not a son. You're a servant. You're a slave. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not an orphanos. You're not an orphan any longer. You're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir, and a joint heir. And you've received the Spirit of God into your life that produces not just freedom from law and legalism, but freedom from the tyranny of sin and death to a glorious liberty of a new creation. That's not something that's going to happen. And I believe in, as he talks about even the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies, he's talking about this resurrected life working in our bodies and moving us from the body of Adam into the body of Christ, and it is an adoption to wit. And I believe the word wit there means to come to a revelation of what's already true about you because of what Jesus has already done. Uh, we're about to run out of time. I'm going to take one more segment perhaps to deal with some of this and uh, come back and, and touch that. I trust you've been blessed. Tune in again next week at the same time as we continue this series. If you've been blessed by this ministry and you're feeding from it and you'd like to help us uh, to stay on the air, please go to our website and sow as generous of a seed as you possibly can. And uh, uh, we appreciate it. There's a way to give via credit card, debit card. You can go there and set up a monthly debit, or if you'd like to become a partner with us, you can set a monthly reoccurring charge. You can give via check or money order by writing to us on the, uh, the address that will come up on the screen, write to Lindhouse Ministries and send it to that address. 
or call the phone number that's on the screen. If you don't get an answer, uh, leave a message if you want a return call, and we will call you back and uh, as soon as we have someone that's free to take your call. God bless you. Thank you for joining us again this week on the program. The word repentance means to change your mind. The message of John the Baptist and of Jesus was to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is accessed by a change in our thinking. If you are in outer darkness, there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That reality is not always out in the distant future. It is in people's lives right now. One simple mind shift can move you out of darkness and weeping and into light and rejoicing. God wants to wipe all tears from our eyes and replace our weeping with joy.